right. One of the one of the other things too that uh, I was thinking is uh, we would I play music. If any of you ever have a special song you'd like to share, please please let us know. We would love to have special music and and more music. And if there's there's a song that you would like us to review. Um, a new song to sing just let us know and we would we would love to review the song and and kind of get some uh some more music and and some some songs to to sing we we love singing songs we love singing theologically accurate songs that's the most important uh but we also like ones that are catchy as well uh we don't have to sacrifice one for the other so if you know of one that is theologically correct and also catchy that's a win-win i think for all of us well, let's go ahead and let's uh, pray, and then we'll spend some time in, in the Word. Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, and for him coming and dying on the cross for our sins, for being, for being buried and then risen on the third day, and, and that based off of your work on our heart and the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, we are able to be saved and able to walk in this newness of life. Um, we are very aware of our struggle with our sins, and we just ask that as we look at this text this morning, you will help us in our, in our struggle with the flesh and with sin, that we would be people of love, of mercy, and of grace that act like your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and love you for everything you bless us with. Uh, we say this in your son's name. Amen. So... Last night, I, I had a thought as I was walking home from the church to, to the house. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a thought like this. I, I thought, will my sins that I've committed in the past, or even some of the sins that I do right now, will that come back to haunt the ones that I love the most? Right? Like, will I do something, say something, in a way that could come back and hurt my family? Pretty, pretty chilling thought. Um, now, I, I'm fully aware of all of, I'm aware of a lot of the sins that I've done. I won't say all of them. I, I'm sure I've sinned numerous times and not even register on my mind that I sinned. And I know that I've done some pretty damaging things to people. I've, I've acted in ways that are not loving. Uh, I'm sure there are people out there who would consider me their enemy. It's just a reality. I, I didn't want it, but that's just the way this life works. Then I had another uh, scary, spooky thought, uh, which chilled me even more, was why do I keep doing the same sins over and over again, right? Like, there's the thought of what happens if my sins come back to haunt me, right? And then the other thought was, well, why aren't you stopping those sins? Like, why, why do you keep on doing that thing? Like, you shouldn't, logic would tell you, stop it. I don't know about you, but every time I have a struggle with the flesh, it, it feels like there's this force, this internal force 
that, that, that just moves me and, and, and plants this desire in me. I don't like it. I don't want it. I don't know where it comes from. And it motivates me. It energizes me. I, I start to scheme. And how do, I, how do I do this thing and not get caught on how to do this? And then, and then as, it, as I'm doing it, I'm trying to cover my tracks, knowing that if anybody finds out that I did this, man, this will be bad. And it, it, it's, it, it hurts my relationship with God. It hurts my relationship with others. When it's done, I feel absolutely terrible. I, I repent in tears. And then I... I know that there's always this chastisement from God, and then it seems like I get right up and I do the same thing again, right? Now, I don't think my experience is unique as a Christian. I think we all have the same experience. And I know that it's a biblical experience because the Apostle Paul even describes the same experience in Romans. He says, the thing that I do want to do, I don't do, and the thing that I don't want to do, that's the very thing that I'm doing. Who can save me from this this reality. This morning, we're, we're going to discuss that reality, but just through the book of Proverbs. We want to talk about the scheming of, of sinful people, the, the scheming of when we're not walking by the Spirit. What, what, what are some of the things that our flesh does? Kind of go through some of the mechanics. Obviously, this is a broad brush, and so this isn't a I'm not going really in depth on every single possible thing that could ever happen with the flesh, but this is kind of a a broad brush. And so this morning in Proverbs 17, starting in verse 7, we're only going to make it to verse 11. I want to show you three things about the striving of the sinner or of the sinful. In verses 7 and 8, we're going to see the scheming, the schemes of the wicked. The schemes of the sinful. In verses 9 and 10, we're going to see the stunted growth. The stunted growth of the sinful and of the wicked. And then verse 11, we're going to see the sentence, the, the judgment on the sinner. So let's start in verse 7 as we think about the schemes of the wicked. And notice what Solomon says here. He says, excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, much less are lying lips to a prince. Now, this word for excellent speech uh, has the idea of being really eloquent. Uh, One translator, which I absolutely loved, said it was highfalutin language. I like that. I might just add that into the New American Standard as the translation. Highfalutin language is not fitting for a fool. Speaks of somebody who can speak eloquently, say really big words, $64 words, and they can say them in such a way that makes sense, and everybody goes, ooh, that, that sounds really nice. So that's the type of words that are being said here, and it says it's not fitting, and so the word here for fitting is appropriate. So it's not appropriate, it's not proper, essentially it's not a good thing. That's probably a really nice way of translating it. So it's not a good thing for a fool. So someone who, it's not a good thing when a fool is eloquent and can argue his case. That is not a good thing. That is a dangerous thing. When a fool is eloquent and persuasive, it is damaging. It's the most dangerous thing in the world. We've got to remember here, a fool is not just somebody who just doesn't know what they're doing. 
remember that a fool is devoid of fear of the Lord. There's numerous times where it talks about the fool in the book of Proverbs and in the book of Psalms. So, for example, like Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. We're talking about what, what happens when you get an eloquent, persuasive atheist. That's not good. That's not good for anybody. The question is, why is it not good? The reason it's not good is because his speech will influence people away from the Lord. Right? Now, think about this. Just think of this phrase, excellent speech. Think of, of what it takes to be uh, persuasive of putting together an argument that automatically insinuates what? Scheming, planning, strategy. And it almost is kind of opposite of each other, isn't it? You wouldn't expect a fool to be able to hide behind good rhetoric, right? You would assume that a fool couldn't put two sentences together. And so notice that there is one thing that is out front that everybody's seeing, but the reality is something else. There's a difference of appearance, right? He appears to be well put together, well thought out, having all the answers, but the reality is that he doesn't. And the other insinuation is that he plans it this way. He, he wants to look persuasive. Now, this isn't good. This isn't good for anybody. It's not good for the fool. It's not good for the people that listen to him. Sometimes it's not even good when we talk to such a fool and try to reason with such a fool. Uh, we're going to find later on in the book of Proverbs, sometimes you do not answer a fool according to his folly. But notice what else it says. It says, much less are lying lips to a prince. So here's another bad speech pattern, a speech impediment, a spiritual speech impediment, if we could say that. Is one is eloquent, and that's bad. Here you have this other one who's a prince, who's a leader, and, and, and a prince has the idea of, of being an oligarch, right? So you have this one who's in complete control, and what? He has lying lips. Well, that's not good either, right? I mean, that's just, that's just as bad, right? Uh, a, a sinful person who's persuasive is just as bad as somebody who has a lot of power, who's supposed to be the leader, and is lying, intentionally lying to his people. But once again... I think we all understand lying is bad. I think we all understand that politicians lie. I don't think this is a shocker to anyone when we read this going, government officials lie. I don't think that's the shock here. I think the thing that you need to realize is that when sometimes when people lie, that is thought out. There's a scheme there, right? There's there's a scheme. Now, Now think of, just think of yourself for a moment. I know it's easy to throw in our minds all the, all the fools that we know that have eloquent speech, and it's easy for us to think of all of the leaders that we know of the other political party that are liars, right? That's easy. But think about us as believers. Just think for a moment of yourself. Think this past week. How many times have you had the urge to do something that goes against God's word? And you did it. And you kind of planned it. And you kind of planned it in such a way that no one would find out about it. Right? There's a, there's a scheming here. There's a, there's a sense of trying to hide 
that. Now, don't say, well, that will never happen to me. There's numerous examples of when people get caught in their sins and their scheming that they automatically point the blame and they try to look one thing, they try to look like one thing on the outside, but they're really another thing. Uh, I think one of the great examples is, is Adam and Eve, when they get caught in their sin, what do they constantly do? Well, what about that guy? What about that? That's a scheme that to, to take, the, take the heat off of myself and put it onto someone else, right? Here we see schemes. Of course, it's wrong for somebody who doesn't know God to be an eloquent speaker and try to act like they know wisdom. They don't know wisdom. And so the temptation is don't listen to fools who can talk real good. It's also true that it's really a detriment to a society when you have leaders that are lying. But what I want you to see is this, is that there's a scheme here, and we as believers do scheme when it comes to sin. It's also wrong if believers lie, and it's also wrong if believers are fools and walking in the flesh and start giving eloquent advice according to the flesh. Now, there's more scheming here. I want, I want you to see the, the scheming. Verse 8, notice there's more scheming here. A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. There's two, two difficulties with this verse. One, it's really hard to translate this, this verse. Uh, and then two, when you do translate it, you kind of go, is Solomon saying magic is, like, pagan divination is good? Or is he saying bribery is good and useful? Is that what he's saying? So the first thing that we got we to gotta admit, or the first thing that we got to figure out is what is Solomon actually saying? And then second, we have to then discern whether he's actually endorsing this or what was he doing. It's my opinion, just based off of the New American Standard, which I, I think is a good translation here, when it says a bribe is a charm, this charm is like a, I don't know, we would, we would kind of view it like a, like a rabbit's foot. I don't know if you've any, met anybody who had a rabbit's foot who actually believed that the rabbit's foot brought them good luck, right? It was a good luck charm. Uh, it, it's something that they think that they have that brings about success, and so the idea is that the bribe itself is seen like a charm that brings about success. And then when it says, um, in the sight of its owner, meaning the one who's giving the bribe. So the one who's giving the bribe thinks that bribes work like a charm. That's what I think he's trying to say. It works like a charm. It's like magic. I give you a bribe to blind justice, and it works right? Because that's kind of what it says in the next verse. Wherever he turns, he prospers. And so the, the idea is he thinks, and unfortunately this does happen, when a bribe is paid, it does sometimes work, right? There's numerous cases of this stuff working. So I think that's what he's talking about, a bribe here, and it works like a charm. That's what he's saying. The next question is, is Solomon saying bribes are good? that we as Christians should be involved in bribery. Well, let me dispel that for you. The Bible will never openly contradict itself. And so we know from other passages, very clearly stated passages, that God hates bribery. He hates this practice. It is wrong on so many levels to pay someone to avert their eyes 
so that you don't receive a penalty. It is the absolute opposite of how a Christian should act by saying, if I do something good for you, there will be a time in which you do something good for me because I did something good for you a couple days ago. That is not how Christians operate. That, that, that is nothing close to the fruit of the Spirit. That's nothing close to 1 Corinthians 13 of the description of love, right? As Paul talks about, as he talks about in Romans, he says, let us owe no one anything except love. And the implication is I do this out of just pure love for you, not, respect, not expecting anything back in return. So this whole, this whole concept of I'll do something good for you so that when the time comes, you will turn your eyes, you will do this other thing so that I can get away with something that's bad. So that's never condoned. It's absolutely never condoned. So the question is then, well, how do we understand this verse? If bribery is never condoned, but it, it seems like a person that gives a bribe prospers. And I think it's still kind of following the same thought as seven. And we'll see later on in this chapter this idea that he who loves transgression loves strife. And so the whole, this whole chapter really could be identified as seeking and striving after sin. And the initial apparent look that sin is a good idea, but we realize on the back end that sin is always a bad idea. And so it appears to me that this verse is like the opinion of the person giving the bribe, saying, this is a good solution to my problem. This is okay. And so it's the view of the fool. And I think the intention is for us to read this to immediately go, that's wrong. That's not the way this is supposed to be. But once again, bribes are wrong. But think about this. How many times do we do something like this where we try to manipulate others, we scheme, we try to hide the bad things that we've done so nobody sees it? Instead of repenting of those sins, we hide them. And we make sure that nobody talks about those sins, right? We do this all the time. I've used the example, and I'll continue to use the example. I, I, I love fried chicken. I think you can look at me and go, yeah, we kind of guessed that. Um, and I remember there was a time where I would go uh, meet up with a guy. We'd eat lunch, and I just love fried chicken. And I would call up Krista and say, hey, hun, do you need anything from the store? And she would go, yeah. And I would go, great. And then I would call and say, hey, do you need anything from the deli? Guess what's at the deli? The fried chicken. So there was this hiding of like, I was just being a good husband. I, I was just being this great husband. And I, 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 just, I just fell into temptation because I just happened to see it. I knew full well when I first made that first call that I was going to try to manipulate the situation so that I could go back and do the thing that I wanted to do that wasn't necessarily the thing that I think God wanted me to do. I went into the situation doing that. Once again, I don't think I'm unique. I think we all kind of have that scheminess. Just like a, just like a person who does bribery, there's a scheme. That, and when we're not walking by the Spirit, this is what we look like.
So those are kind of the schemes. But now let's look at this, this next thing about how sin and striving after sin stunts growth. And, and, and I see growth in two ways in this next verse. In verse 9, the sense that I get is that there's this, just with sin, there's a, a, a destructive destruction of relationships and, and, and bitterness and gossip destroys things. Love, forgiveness, grace, mercy, love towards one another, that, that's a, that brings people together, that edifies, that builds people up. And, and so there seems to be with righteousness, a building up, a unity with sin and of the sin of gossip specifically here in, in verse 9, it destroys. So, it's, so what we could say is this, the, the thousand foot principle is sin destroys, stunts growth within relationships, family relationships, friend relationships. Sin causes that. And then in verse, verse 10, we're going to see how somebody who receives a rebuke, a wise person who, who is rebuked, is humble enough, teachable enough to say, you're right, I'm wrong, and they repent and they take it to heart. Where somebody who is scheming and not walking by the Spirit, even if you were to beat them within an inch of their life, they would not change. And so what's this stunt? The stunt is the stunting of, of personal growth. So let's look at this first one in verse 9 of, of this, this interrelationship destruction that happens with sin. And specifically, the sin that's, that's talked about here is, is gossip. So, so just notice what he says here. He says, he who conceals a transgression seeks love. And he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Now, let's, let's notice in verse 9 when it says, he who conceals. The word for conceal literally means to cover over, right? This is not, once again, condoning, covering up like a cover-up, right? Like you see a sin and going, well, as a brother, I got I to gotta help out my guy so he doesn't get in trouble. That's not what this is talking about. Because the word conceal can also mean forgive. And I think that's probably a better idea here, that one who is forgiving seeks love, right? It, it's, it's, not, it's not saying that I see something that's wrong, and I don't, I don't expose what's wrong. It's speaking of if somebody did something wrong to me, I forgive them and I don't bring it up again. Right? I think that's the idea here. So with that, with that idea of concealing, we have to talk about forgiveness. And I must admit, uh, I don't know about you, but there are certain people at certain times that I have struggled to forgive. Really struggled. Really, really struggled. Uh, and and uh, it, it, it's been difficult. And as I think through a believer and how we're supposed to be forgiving, there are a lot of statements in the New Testament that really are convicting but it's what, it's right. And this is how we're supposed to think of forgiveness. So this first principle of forgiveness, go with me quickly to Ephesians 4. This one 
seems to pop up in my mind a lot when I'm not forgiving. And, and I feel like, I feel like uh, the Spirit uses this one quite a bit in my life. I quote it a lot, even though it's not my life verse. It, I quote it enough for it to be kind of my life verse. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. And then here's the part that's super convicting. Just as God in Christ also forgave you. Now, I'm willing to forgive you on my terms. But notice what the definition of forgiveness is here. And the level of forgiveness that we're supposed to have towards one another is the same level as God forgave us of our sin. So I think about that. Well, how did God forgive me? How did, how did he forgive me of my sins? What did he do? He sent Jesus Christ to come and die on the cross for my sins, be buried, raised again on the third day. He worked on my heart. He looked at me with grace and mercy and love. And he declared, I forgive you. I don't like that. My flesh hates that. My flesh wants you to pay for the crime that you've done against me. Right? That's how, that's how the flesh thinks, right? When we're not walking by the Spirit. Instead of looking at someone and looking at them with grace, which is unmerited favor, instead of looking at them with mercy, I'm not going to give you what you do deserve. Instead of looking at them with love, right, which is patient, kind, doesn't keep a record of wrongs, it's not jealous, it's not self, it's, not, it's always becoming, it hopes all things, it believes all things, it, it hopes and believes that God can change this person's life. Instead of looking at a person like that, I, I want to look at them in, in a different way. But I think this is how we as believers need to deal with one another, is forgiving each other, Right? Forgiving each other as Jesus and God has forgiven us. Looking at each other with grace and mercy and love. Now, the Bible has a lot more to say about forgiveness. In fact, there's like, when we talk about forgiveness, I see like three big images when dealing with forgiveness and, and the type of forgiveness that God forgives us with and the type of forgiveness that we have with others. The, the first seems to be this, this idea of, of a removal of an offense. So there's a lot of language in the Bible when talking about forgiveness, like God casts our sins in the darkest parts of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, right? So is our sins with us, right? That's, that's the forgiveness. There's this, there's this dramatic space between the person and their offense, and this is what God does. He separates it, right? In speaking of forgiveness, there's this idea of washing, of cleansing, right? I'm forgiven because of the blood of Jesus, which cleanses me. So there's this idea of cleansing. There's this idea of not counting a sin against a person, right? So it's looking at a person and not thinking of the offense that they've done. And those images really kind of help me kind of begin to think about forgiveness and when I forgive someone else. Obviously, I don't have the power to pronounce you forgiven. Only God can do that. But when you have an offense against me, I can look at you and say, you're pardoned. I'm no longer looking at you as if you did that offense against me. It's done. It's dealt with. It's over. We're not bringing it up again. That's it. Right? I'm separating you from your sin. 
It's done with. We don't have to discuss this again. Right? That's it. There's a sense of like a judge that pardons somebody who has a crime against the state and they say innocent. Right? That's the sense. There's another, there's another image. The, the other image is this idea of reconcile of relationships. There's a lot when talking about God's forgiveness towards us of this change that we used to be this one thing and now we're seen as this other thing, right? We used to be bad. We used to be children of wrath, but now we're seen as children of God. And so my forgiveness towards one another, there should be this reconciling of relationship, right? Forgiveness, that's really what it is, that, that reconciling of relationship. Obviously, that reconciliation, just, as a, just as, a, as a thing that I think about, has to be with discernment and has to be with wisdom, right? Some, sometimes when we ask for forgiveness and we say, okay, I'm not going to hold that offense against you anymore, doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship is completely, totally restored. There's sometimes where we got to look at those things with discernment. And there's so many cases that it's not worth it to go through that. Just say, but just simply to say this, that at the heart of forgiveness is a reconciliation of relationships, right? So, so when somebody forgives, there should be this separating of the person from their offense. There should be this declaration, it's done. There should be this sense of, okay, we're now going to, we now can come together. That, that, that thing is no longer between us. There, there now can be this reconciliation. And interestingly enough, the third one is kind of close to it, but, but it, it does have this st- status of change, right? Like there was this before a person was forgiven, and then there's this after, right? So there's this, there's this definite change of behavior with, within the people uh, w- w- after forgiveness. So think about this. Before you were forgiven of your sins... You were in one place, and then God forgave you, and now you're a child, and you can now have the opportunity to repair that relationship, right? That's forgiveness, and I think that's the type of forgiveness that we as believers should extend to one another. Um, Because if we don't, notice what happens in the next part of the verse in Proverbs 17. Verse 9, it says, But he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. By the way, I cannot separate in my mind verses 7, 8, and 9. I, it's really difficult for me to think, okay, in verse 7, there's, there's this speech of the fool, and there's the, the lying speech of the prince, and then there's this scheming of, of trying to uh, hurt somebody through a bribe, and now there's then this repeating of a matter to to separate friends, and then as I look down through the chapter of this idea of the sinner loving sin, I can't separate this from the idea that there may be even an aspect of, yes, gossip, yes, bitterness, but even blackmail, right, of somebody who repeats a matter. I have dirt on you, therefore you better do what I say, or everyone will find out what you've been doing. Of course, this deals with gossip, but we don't struggle with gossip, so we can just skip over this one. I'm joking, of course. This may be one of those, uh, those sins that we all realize is bad, but it's not as bad as other sins, right? 
we have this really, we're, we're products of our culture. And it's possible for us in our culture to break the law, like speeding, but because we haven't killed anybody, everyone can look at us and say, you're a law-abiding citizen, which is kind of true. Kind of not, but it is true, right? I can, I can, create a, I can uh, violate a lesser offense, and that's kind of okay, but if I break one of these bigger ones, well, then that's, that's really bad. I think that's coming to the church, and so we have a set of, here's lesser sins. You do it, it's kind of bad, right? It's like a parking ticket, whatever. It's annoying, but then there's these big, bad sins. And normally the big, bad sins are the sins that you and I would never think of committing and would never be tempted to commit. But all these little offenses, which we're kind of, we're like, it's annoying, yeah, it's bad, but it's really not that bad when I do it because I always have a good reason. We, we kind of view it as a lesser crime. If we understand sin theologically from God's point of view, all sin is lawlessness and rebellion. When you sin, you break the law. That's it. Now, in our mind, there are different degrees, right? So obviously looking at my brother with hate is not the same as pulling out a gun and shooting him. But theologically, from God's standpoint, yeah, they're both sin. They're both a violation of his holiness. We got we to gotta understand that when we think of these little sins like this. This is bad. All sin is bad. All sin. Everyone. And for every single sin that we've committed, those were the sins that Jesus came to die for. He didn't die for the big ones. He died for all the little ones. So here we see this one of repeating a matter, gossiping to others about the sin of someone else. Or this one happens a lot. And uh, if you've ever done any sort of marital counseling or talked to any couple that's having problems, a lot of times what you'll hear is, well, so-and-so did this, they did that, they did this, they did that, they did that. They're not telling you that to help you. They're telling you that so that you can have a bad view of the other person, right? It's all to hurt. It's never, it's never to bring things together. It's always to hurt, separate, belittle. It's evil. And what does this do? The first one brings love, brings togetherness. What does this one do? This one separates and it says intimate friends. That's a really good translation. Uh, it, it, it's like those friends that are like family members. So think of this. Friends that are like brothers. What's the best way to destroy them? Is gossip. You see, this is what happens when we're not walking by the power of the Spirit. Walking in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Yielding to the Spirit. When the flesh comes out, what does it do? It just destroys. It seeks and destroys everything. It ruins relationships so easily with words. I'm going to try to hurt that person. It doesn't matter. I'm doing it for their own good, but I'm going to hurt them all the same. And then notice the next <laughs> verse 10. A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding. I'm very thankful for the spirit that works in my heart, that softens my heart, so that when I hear the rebukes of God's word, he amplifies that and works on my heart to make me teachable. Now, there's still times of where I'm rebellious, but I think that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit softens our hearts to the Word of God so that we're more sensitive 
to the leading of God and his word. I think that's something that he's doing all the time. Chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And a person who's yielding to the spirit, when we listen to his word, and we think about the gospel, and we see his holiness, and we see the, the parts that, of us that are not holy, and we go, yes, I need to change that. And we repent, we learn from it. Isn't that incredible that the Lord does that? That he just hasn't left us? He's just not here yelling at us that we do all these things wrong. But he works on us, making us more like Christ. He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Right? That's what he does. And this is a great thing. So a wise person, a righteous person, hears the word of God. And then, because they have discernment, they they take it to heart. They take it to heart. They hear the rebuke, and they go, yep, you're right. I need to change. (laughs) Not so for the fool, right? Notice what it says. It says, a rebuke goes deeper into the one who has understanding. So this deep takes it to heart. Then a hundred blows into a fool. Yeah, that's true, right? I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure we all know of instances where there was a fool that no matter what punishment you gave them, it wouldn't change them. I ain't changing. <laughs> you can't change me. Do your worst. That ain't going to change me, right? And we understand this, right? But notice, what's really being hurt here? It, it, the, the fool actually is being hurt, right? Because he's not taking the rebuke, the punishment to heart and changing, and repenting. He's, he's got resolve to stay in his sin, to continue striving in his sin, continue striving in his flesh. So he's, he's hurting his own growth, his own, his own relationship with the Lord. He's hurting himself. He loves, he loves hurting himself here. So when we're walking by the flesh, this, this destroys our ability to, to grow. And then notice this last one, Kind of an interesting one. Uh, verse 11 says, A rebellious man seeks only evil. It's kind of interesting, because uh, actually in the, in the Hebrew, it seems like, the, it's, tra- like they, it's inverted. So in the Hebrew, it would say, An evil man only seeks rebellion. But you get the sense, right? Somebody who's rebellious loves being rebellious. They love it, and that's what they seek. And that's it. The more rebellious they can be, the better off they are. That's what they want. That's what they want to do. And then notice what it says. It says, a cruel messenger will be sent against him. I understand this cruel messenger as a divine messenger. And I understand the image here as God will punish this one. This is the consequence. God has a sentence out on this one. And God himself will be the one that will deal with this fool. And he will deal with the fool in a way that you can't and I can't. He deals with sinners in a way that changes sinners' hearts. And here, this idea is of of judgment. And you just have to forgive me for rushing here for a second, but we have to remember that when we sin, there's always a consequence to sin. And we as children of God will be disciplined. We're not, we're not under the righteous judgment of God, but he disciplines us like a father. And I would say the majority of the time that he disciplines us is through his word. His word rebukes us. Uh, there's times where the natural consequence of that sin will happen to us, and that is part of God's 
discipline as well. I would also say that when he disciplines the church, sometimes the discipline is he gives you exactly what you want. I remember one time I was uh, living in sin, and I uh, was working. I I didn't deserve a raise. I knew I didn't deserve a raise. I wasn't a very good testimony of Jesus. And I get called into my boss's office, and I get a significant raise. And I knew beyond a shadow of doubt I did not deserve a raise. I knew it. And I knew that it wasn't because of my behavior or the way I was conducting myself. I knew, I, I knew it was the Lord, the Lord was working in this man's life, right, to give me a raise. And I went out to my car and wept over my sin. Because the Lord, the Lord was gracious when I deserved a giant spanking. He gave me an ice cream sundae. That's how he works. He, he works that way. We often ascribe big disaster events to God's punishment. And sometimes... That's not right. We, we look at hurricanes and we go, who sinned to cause a hurricane? Don't think about that. <laughs> Trust me, if God wanted to punish us for sins, he's not, he doesn't have, it's not like he's sitting there searching for sins to punish people. We've sinned enough that he could send millions of hurricanes. Sometimes God allows those things to happen to bring people to himself because he's doing stuff that we can't see. And sometimes it has nothing to do with the punishment of sin. Did you ever think of that? When God deals with us as believers, he deals with us through his word. Now, you're looking at, you're, you're, we're listening to this and we're saying, okay, Caleb, I get it that if I strive according to the flesh, these bad things happen, right? I begin to be a schemer. That's not awesome. I, I begin to, 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 to stunt my growth with others and between God. I, 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 get, I get this, this discipline that's not okay. How do we, how do we stop this? Like, like how, do I, how do I get out of this? And, and I would say that the New, the New Testament would give us two principles, right? It's a principle I would call, or these two principles, if we put them together, I would, I would say it would be kill and live. Two words, right? I think it's simple. This is how the New Testament teaches us how to deal with sin. Kill and live. When I say kill, I mean the New Testament tells us very clearly to kill the flesh, right? The old King James word was mortify, right? I like that word. That's a strong word, mortify the flesh. How do we do that? How do we, how do, we do that mortification, right? Well, the Bible is very clear. We have to know who we are in Christ. And we have to know that because we're in Christ and we're the, this new creature, we also have the indwelling Holy Spirit. I have to know that. I have to see myself in who I am in Christ. And when I see myself being a new creature in Christ, having the Holy Spirit indwelling me, I now know I can say no to sin. Before I couldn't, now I can. I can say no. Not only can I say no, I can also not put myself in an opportunity to continue to sin. By the, spirit of, by the power of the Spirit, I can say no to sin, and I can not subject myself to sin. I, I don't have to give sin an opportunity to continue to rule in my life. I don't, I, I don't have to give it a beachhead anymore. It's not my master. It's, it's like somebody trying to rob me with a water gun. Just turn around, knock the water gun out of their hand, go, what are you trying to do, man? So many times we think that when we feel that urge and that temptation, we just got to do it. 
No, they're trying to hold you up with a water gun. You don't have to listen to that guy. And so when you're in this temptation, you just, you, you look at the temptation, you identify this is sin, you say, no, you pray to God, God help me get a new desire that's according to your desire, and you replace that desire with God's word, which teaches you what you should do. That's how you, that's how you kill. That's how you kill the flesh. Say, no, I'm not doing that. Got to be stout. And there's another principle, live by the spirit. How do we do that? Starts with who I am in Christ. I have to know who I am in Christ. I have to know what power has been given to me by the Spirit. I have to know that. And as I think about that, I go, yes, to what the Lord wants me to do. I know his word. I know the principles of his word. I've been spending time in his word, right? And so when I get the temptation, I go, this is what God's word says for me to do. God, by your power, help me do this and say yes to what is right. You have to kill and live. I really wish that when I became a believer, I didn't have to deal with sin anymore. (laughs) That would be nice. But that's not the reality that the Lord has for us. We are becoming more and more like Christ every day, praise the Lord, but we still got to struggle with the flesh. And you will continue to struggle with the flesh. And I guarantee you that as soon as we sing the last song, maybe even the middle of the last song, maybe even right now, there's still the struggle of sin. That's going to be present. And we're going to struggle and struggle and struggle and fight and fight and fight. And by God's grace, each day, we will become more and more like Christ. And then some glorious day, whether it's by the rapture or when the Lord takes us home, we won't have to fight this fight anymore. Man, won't that be awesome? Can you imagine what it would be like to worship God without the sin nature? To worship Jesus without sinful thoughts? To be able to fellowship with other brothers and sisters without the sin nature? Man, there's a lot of things I'm looking forward to in heaven. That's definitely on the top. I can't wait to worship Jesus without sin. Without egos and without all the stuff that goes into it just just to authentically love him and share my love for him without any of this someday that's coming and 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 that cannot come soon enough but until then we struggle we struggle and by god's grace we will continue to grow and become more like jesus christ may the lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today let's go ahead and let's pray father we thank you so much for your son We thank you so much for the spirit that comes and leads us and guides us. We ask that you would help us in the midst of this struggle to not yield to the flesh, but to yield to your spirit, to be be led by your spirit, to be controlled by your spirit. Uh, Father, we, we desperately, desperately need your help for you to change our will to give us those desires that we, that we should have and give us the ability to do what you ask us. We also are looking forward to that day that we get to see you. And uh, that cannot come soon enough. And I pray that you would send your son to come quickly. But if you tarry, help us continue to love you, to serve you, and and to, to offer you a life that's pleasing to you. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen.